weird visions and eccentric behavior and the doom and gloom in Ezekiel. Well, I have some news for you, and that is it gets a lot better in the end. But first, it gets worse. So, uh, so we'll jump right in. And the truth is, you know, I don't like to think about judgment. I don't like to think about uh, sin, uh, especially uh, about my own, <laughs> the, the tendencies of our own hearts. We don't like to think about those things. And so there's this universal tendency, I think, to downplay or be dismissive about what goes on in our own hearts. We like to, to minimize the, the tendencies towards sin in our own hearts. And I think uh, a way that we do this is we frame our, our sin, our, our, uh, our choices, our, um, our actions, our attitudes. We, we frame these through uh, these lenses of first society and then freedom and impact. Let me just explain briefly. We, we look at our own hearts through the lens of uh, society, what everybody else is doing. <laughs> it's like, well, this is okay in our, in our culture, so it's not that big a deal. Or through the lens of freedom, it's like, hey, I'm, you know, I could make my own choices. I could, I could do what I want. Or through the lens of impact, uh, this isn't really hurting anybody. I don't see what is the big deal. And so we look at our own hearts through these lenses instead of in terms of relationship. Instead of in terms of our relationship with God, we see we need to see sin in terms of whom it is against. <laughs> I think of, uh, of David. He did this terrible thing of he took another man's wife and then he worked things out so, um, so this man would be killed and uh, it's just all these, these lies and deceit and terrible things. And when he finally uh, was confronted and came to his senses and he penned uh, the Psalm 51 about this event, he says this interesting comment. He says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, Not Bathsheba, not her husband, not the rest of the military, not the nation who was affected, uh, not his his wife or his other wife. Um, but uh, he says, no, it's against, in comparison maybe, against you only, God, have I sinned and, what, uh, and done evil in your sight. And so I think when we look at our own hearts, we need to not look at these other, through these other lenses that tend to be dismissive, but to think about uh, our relationship with a holy God. I imagine it like this, standing before King Jesus in some heavenly palace, you know, all the glorious angels around, and sometimes I picture uh, Jesus like Aslan from Narnia, I don't know if anybody else does, but um, imagine Jesus uh, turning to you and looking at you in that moment, you're standing there before his throne, and he just simply says, you know, son of Adam or daughter of Eve, um, here, look me in the eyes. A simple request. And instead, you cross your arms and you turn your shoulder to him. What a, what a gesture. Could you imagine doing that to the king of kings? Well, when you look at it through 
the lenses that we tend to look at it, you might think uh, society, you know, whatever everybody else is doing, well, it turns out where I come from, disrespecting authority is like a pastime. You know, it's like apple pie and baseball and disrespecting authority. Or maybe through the lens of freedom, well, I can do what I want. Or impact, how does just like folding my arms and turning my shoulder, how does that hurt anybody? And we look at it through that lens. But you're doing it to the king of the universe. <laughs> and this is what Ezekiel reminds us of in these chapters of, of 15, 16, and 17. And our big idea this morning is that we really need to come to this place where we see ourselves in the context of our relationship with God. If you're uh, taking notes and following along on the outline, that is our, our big idea today, is to see yourself in the context of your relationship with God. Ezekiel helps us to do this uh, in kind of uh, graphic terms. Uh, here's the setting. The exiles that he was talking to... Um, Remember, a lot of people from Jerusalem have been taken captive into Babylon. This is who Ezekiel is speaking to. Uh, some are left in Jerusalem, and, and uh, they're hoping that everything's going to be okay. And God's told them in various ways that, no, it's not going to be okay. So that's kind of the setting. So the exiles, they didn't think things were bad enough to warrant God's judgment. They thought, you know, is this really so bad? And so Ezekiel, we already saw he gave these two object lessons where he acted out these things to make a point, and then he gave five little sermonettes, and well, now he's going to give three parables, three metaphors or word pictures to say essentially this, your spiritual condition is worse than you realize, and hope has run out for Jerusalem. That's kind of the summary of these uh, parables. And so the point for us, it's an urgent message that we need to see our hearts in the context of our relationship with God. So, Ezekiel 15 to 17, uh, these chapters start on page uh, 701, if you're using one of those pew Bibles that's, that's stuck in the back of the chair in front of you. And this first parable that we look at, this first word picture in chapter 15 is the charred vine. So, the deal is that people, they misunderstood the implications of their relationship with God. And I think the essential core problem was this. They viewed themselves as superior rather than sacred. And so here's what we need to remember is the flip side. In your relationship with God, you are sacred, not superior. So the people, God's, God's people, the Israelites... Um, they viewed themselves, because God had used this, these images, as God's grapevine. A grapevine is a wonderful thing when it's producing grapes. It's not much use for anything if it's not producing grapes. Um, the, the, uh, the fruit of, of righteousness and, and God's, God's love and his purposes. So it starts off like this. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood... Of the vine surpass any wood. The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. Uh, how do you compare the, the lumber from a grapevine from the trees of the forest? It's, it's terrible. So, um, verse 3 Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on? You can't even use it to, uh, you know, to make a little hook to hang things on. 
Although I know you can make like a wicker basket or something, but, you know, it's not very useful as wood. It's so the thing is, God's saying, you think that you are special or entitled or superior, but when you stop shining the love and righteousness of God, then, then it's like you're worthless. You're like uh, scraps of dried up um, grapevine. And you can't build anything out of dried up grapevine. And, but it is good for one thing, verse 4. Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. So it's good for burning. Uh, that's what piles of, of dead um, grapevines is good for. And he says, in fact, you've already been, I'm summarizing now a little bit, you've already been charred on both ends. And I think this is probably talking about how Nebuchadnezzar came and, and attacked Jerusalem twice, charred him on one end, came charred him on the other end, and so now there's this charred, dried up, dead, fruitless vine. It's like, well, what are we going to do with this? All it's good for is for burning. So all this imagery to point out to the people that when you're not bearing fruit, uh, what, what is so special about being labeled as uh, God's family? You are less useful to God than those outside his family. All the other trees that at least you could build something out of. And so verse 8, he says, And I will make this land desolate, because why they've acted faithlessly, which is kind of the root of all this, declares the Lord. Faithless, they, his people, God's family, God's, um, God's people that he covenanted himself with, uh, abandon the covenant. They were faithless. And so when you abandon your life of devotion to God, then uh, you render yourself useless. I think this is what Ezekiel is saying to the people. And the exiles have this reaction, like, what do you mean unfaithful? Really, like, what, what are we doing that's that bad? And Ezekiel says, do you not know that as the people of God, you are in a covenant relationship with God? So whatever unfaithfulness you are doing is against uh, your faithful king spouse. And that paints it in a whole different light. And so when you do your own thing and you worship other things and you disregard God's instructions, you neglect your relationship with God, oh, I'll get back to that sometime, it's like an unfaithful spouse. And so in chapter 16, we're going to see our next parable and here's where it gets gritty, is the whoring bride. And Ezekiel tells this uh, extended uh, tale, an extended metaphor about uh, the people of God, and he compares them to, uh, well, if you look in the whole Bible, the word whore is used an awful lot in this chapter. It's a little disturbing. And he compares them to a, a whoring bride. And just the summary of it is, is this. There's a, uh, a baby girl She's born and she's abandoned. And then um, this king comes and rescues her and, uh, and marries her ultimately and showers her with gifts. And then uh, she uh, turns on him. That's kind of the summary of, of this metaphor. The thing is, we, we tend to get smug, I think, as the people of God. Uh, we think, oh, we're the ones who are right. We're the ones who are moral. We're the ones who are special. You know, we, we get this sense of superiority rather than just a sacredness, a set-apartness by God. And everything starts to fall apart. 
And so here, the, the first several verses, maybe to verse 14, I think here's the point. What we need to never forget as people in God's family is that in your relationship with God, you were rescued, not reformed. Uh, we sung about this this morning, I think, especially um, uh, Come Thou Fount and uh, how we're all prone to wander and how God rescued us. We need to remember in our relationship with God that we were rescued, not reformed. So I'll just read some pieces of this. You can go back uh, and read the whole thing later if you have the stomach for it. Verse 4 describes this metaphor. He says, And as for your birth, remember he's comparing the people to this, this child. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor were you rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. What a sad image. So to people who are strutting around like, yeah, you know, I'm pretty great. I happen to, you know, be one of the chosen ones and... uh, like, you know where I found you? You were like a little abandoned baby that they didn't even cut the cord. They didn't, uh, they didn't wash. They just left you out in a field somewhere. He's like, so you're pretty big stuff. That's where I found you. This is probably talking about when God called Abraham out of a godless people and, uh, and uh, out of a godless place, and he was in a land of godlessness and he was alone and helpless, and, and God came by, and he, uh, he rescued him. Well, it continues on, verse 6. It says, When I passed by you, and I saw you there wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up, and you became tall, and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown yet you are still naked and bare. So the image of uh, God giving, uh, giving his people life, and they were growing. Probably this is talking about all that period of time in, in Egypt where they were multiplying and they are getting bigger and bigger. You know, they were coming to maturity, so to speak, and yet they were, uh, they were still uh, bare. They were still uh, without an identity, without a culture, without a leader. They were, they were in slavery. And then verse 8 the Lord comes by again. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I bathed you, I anointed you, I clothed you with embroidered cloth, with fine leather, fine linen, with silk. I'm skipping a little bit here. And I adorned you, verse 11, with ornaments, with bracelets, with a chain on your neck, with a ring on your nose, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. I adorned you with gold and with silver, and you ate fine flour and honey and oil, and you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. So this uh, benevolent king comes by and... And, uh, and takes this orphan girl and betroths himself to her. He rescues her. He marries her. He pours out all these gifts on her. That's what he's done for us as well. 
And we saw, uh, like historically, if you see the nation of Israel, they, they flourished in the time of the early kings, David, and into the first part of Solomon's reign. Uh, the whole world was coming to check out how amazing uh, the, the wealth and prosperity and glory of Israel was. It was a glorious, glorious thing. So this is our story. Your relationship with God has nothing to do with how you cleaned yourself up or with how you were so clever that you found Jesus or how you were so lucky that you were born in the right place at the right time or you were so good that God was impressed like, oh, yeah, I'll take that one on my team. No, it was nothing like that. We were lost and he came for us. Ephesians describes this. It says, but God being rich in mercy, which he certainly is, and because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, it's God who made us alive. It's God's grace that saved us. We, we were rescued. And we were lavished with his gifts. Uh, earlier in Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He just dumped out all these spiritual blessings on us and just cared for us in so, so many ways. So I, I think we tend to, at least sometimes, think of living the Christian life um, in an in a exercise, uh, dieting kind of terminology. And so Here's the problem with that. When we, uh, when we, by our own efforts, are good enough long enough to get to a certain place, then we start to think that we make the rules. So, for instance, if the Christian life was like an like exercise routine or a diet, then uh, you make the rules, and when you go on vacation, uh, it's fine to cheat, right? Like, you can... You know, you don't have to, you know, do your same running that you do on vacation. You know, you have that extra piece of pie, whatever. You make the rules. You're on vacation. But God says it's actually like a marriage. And uh, let me just make it clear that when you go on vacation, you can't cheat. It's a totally different thing. It's not something that you have, um, you've made for yourself, but it's a relationship with God that you are in. In your relationship with God, you are rescued, not reformed. Well, as a result of all this, uh, all this goodness that God poured out on his, his bride, um, something terrible happened. And we see the shift in between 14 and 15 of chapter 16. Uh, 14 says, And your renown went forth among the nations... Like, for instance, the Queen of Sheba came all the way up to see how impressive all this was. The, your renown went out to the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And then at the height of glory, a subtle but horrible thing happened. Verse 15 says, But you trusted in your beauty, in your own gloriousness, in your own, you know, thinking you are extra special. Uh, you believed all those uh, self-esteem mantras. You know, you played them enough times that you believed, like, yes, I really am that. 
incredible. One commentator, uh, Charles uh, Dyer, says, Jerusalem's gaze turned from her benefactor to her beauty. It, it might be a, a subtle when it happens, but, but, it's, uh, but it changes everything. This shift from God's glory to now it's kind of about my glory. What I've accomplished, what blessings I deserve, what liberties I have a right to, uh, how I can get what I want from God, you know, all these kind of different sort of questions arise. And so what we need to remember is in your relationship with God, it's about His glory, not yours. Ezekiel uh, shows us how this subtle shift plunged Israel into a terrible, terrible place. Uh, Just follow me a little bit. In 15, it started out, but you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore because of your renown, and you lavished your whorings on any passerby. So pretty uh, startling imagery there from Ezekiel. When, When we look through the lens of society, freedom, impact, we think, what's the big deal with our choices? But through the lens of a covenant relationship, it's all of a sudden a very big deal. Uh, it's interesting, this passage in later uh, Judaism, they would skip over this passage for the public uh, reading in the synagogue just because of the, the, the metaphor here. Um, we think things are no big deal when we look through those lenses that I mentioned. But to God, it's a very big deal. And to God, it, it lands like this, verse 16. It's like this. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. It says, when you take the gifts of God, um, maybe it's, um, you know, material blessings or friendships you have or the, the health God's given you or talents he's given you, Uh, If you take all these gifts of God and you use them for sin, God says, this is what it feels like to me. It's as if a bride uh, received this wedding dress gift from her husband, and then she cut it up and she made maybe curtains or bedsheets for her brothel out of that dress. That's like kind of the imagery. God says, that's what it feels like to me when you do that. In verse 17, it, it gets worse. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. God says, when you uh, use the gifts he's given you to, uh, for sin, it's as if uh, this, this benevolent king husband gives all these gifts of, of gold and jewelry and... Uh, and she melts them down and makes images of, let's just say, male anatomy and has relations with these idols that she made. He's like, that's what, it, that's what it feels like to God when we do that. And he continues on with some similar metaphors. In 22, he gets to the basic problem that says, in all your abominations and your, your whorings, <laughs> you did not remember the days of your youth. You forgot where you came from. You forgot the promises that were made. You forgot uh, the relationship that you were in. And once we turn the focus on ourselves and our own glory, there's no end to the spiritual ruin that we go, the path that we go on. 
And it's hard to think about it, but it just gets worse. You know, Ezekiel's saying, uh, you've been real indifferent about this. You've been real, you know, minimalizing all these things. He's like, this is how it feels to God. Verse 20, uh, 25, at the head of every street, every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. I looked up the Hebrew, and it literally says you, you spread your feet or your legs for every passerby. Just the imagery is like, it's just, you know, it makes you want to throw up. The, the passage is saying this is how disgusting it is to God, the things that we think are no big deal. And then it gets worse. He says, you played the horror of the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Assyrians, and you say it's no big deal. And yet God says, verse 30, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord. And then in verse 34, if we can believe it, it gets uh, even worse. He says, you, uh, you give prostitutes a bad name. You're not even a good prostitute because in 34, you're different from the other women in your whorings because no one solicited you to play the whore. You gave payment while no payment was given to you. So it's, you can't really get much worse than this image. In verse 35, it says, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. And Ezekiel describes, uh, describes this scene that I'll just paraphrase, and it's, it's like, Israel, all your so-called lovers, all these different alliances, all these things you dabbled in, all these all these uh, false gods, all, all your lovers, it's as if they'll gang up together, they'll strip you, they'll abuse you, and they'll leave you for dead. And this is how this ends. Well, this is very, very intense. Uh, so uh, just picture these, you know, stoic, like shrug it off, hey, it's no big deal, it's not hurting anybody. And Ezekiel says, no, this is what it's like to God. This is included in the Bible for our benefit (laughs) because nobody wants to end up in spiritual ruin. We want to be cut off at the past before we let ourselves uh, slide to that place. Um, We really, even if we don't know it in the moment, we really want our hearts to be be grabbed out, snatched out of the ruin that comes when we turn the focus on our own glory instead of God's glory. Because as soon as we forget first that we were rescued and we shift the focus on ourselves, we start down a path that we never wanted to be on, and at least to a place we never wanted to go. So all, all this, obviously, as I said, is, is a metaphor for what, um, what God's people were doing. And throughout this passage, you see hints of the actual sins that they were committing, um, some of those might seem kind of mundane to us. You know, the trusting too much in foreign alliances and, you know, maybe some subtle dishonesty and maybe a little dabbling in other religions. Well, some of the things seem absolutely terrible, and they are. Um, they joined in with child sacrifices that other nations around them were doing. How do you get to that place where you think that that is Okay. It, it had to be, uh, well, you know, 
everyone else is doing it. <laughs> that's what our culture. That's what the, that's what the culture does. This is how we, you know, try to make sure we get a good crop or whatever it might be, and rationalize and make sense. But an onlooker would say, "How do you get there from here?" So whether it's these kind of we might think of little sins or horrific sins, Ezekiel says, you know, all of it is. Uh, hurts God's heart. All of it is like the folded arms turn the shoulder to God's face. It's what it, it lands. And, and it's all like uh, the, the whoring that he describes. So we need to remember that in a relationship with God, it's about his glory, not yours. Uh, is anybody ready for some good news? Yeah, good. Okay. I hear an amen out there. Uh, even in this dark dark uh, scenario, the hope of God shines. It shifts maybe verse 59. Uh, For thus says the Lord, I will deal with you as you have done. You know, you're going to get what you earned here. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you that I made in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. So God, he keeps his end of the deal, he keeps his promises, and he promised an even better covenant to follow. So we need to remember, in our relationship with God, he is faithful, though we are faithless. And isn't that a glorious thought? Verse 62 says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, which is Uh, the whole point of this whole book, probably, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. So in this shadow of judgment, there is this uh, beautiful hope that springs out of it. Uh, Even when we make a spiritual ruin of our lives, uh, God's faithful and can atone. He can take care of our mess. This is possible through Jesus. Uh, the New Testament, just to jump back and forth a little bit, reminds us of this in 2 Timothy in, um, in what's probably a, a formulated hymn or a, or a creed statement. It ends by saying, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. And so we'll shift and just look at one more parable. And the message is, is basically the same. It's this dual message that, one, Jerusalem will come to ruin for abandoning her covenant with God, but two, even so, God will bring a future hope. So that's it's also the point of this third parable. Uh, we'll talk about this one much more briefly. Parable three is the birds and the trees, if you're trying to guess. It's a riddle or a parable about two eagles and some transplanted trees and, and a vine and some other things. And I'll just summarize kind of the meaning of it, which is explained throughout the, the text. Uh, Jerusalem would be attacked and subdued by eagle number one. That's Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Zedekiah, the puppet king, he would try to make an alliance with eagle number two, that's Pharaoh of Egypt. But the alliance will not help and Jerusalem will come to ruin. That's kind of the summary of, of most of, of this parable. 
And, uh, and it goes through some of these same kind of things we've seen. And then in verse 22, I'd like to just read there to the end of the chapter. But even though Jerusalem's going to not uh, fare well here, even so, verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I myself will make a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I'll break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, and I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. 24. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I'll dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Again, we are talking a, a metaphor here, or a riddle, or a puzzle, so to speak. And uh, I believe the meaning of this is, even though the present circumstances, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be all these things happen, but one day, God will raise up this shoot out of Judah's line that will come and make all things right. They'll be, they'll be flourishing. There'll be, um, there'll be a whole new thing happening. Ultimately, this takes place in the, in the millennium, in the reign of Christ here on earth, which we'll learn more about uh, a few weeks from now. In, the, in spite of the mess we make of things, one, God will always keep his end of the promise. Always. And two, Jesus will ultimately make all things right. These are things we can grab onto. In the meantime, the critical task is to see yourself in the context of your relationship with God and stop looking at through life from all these other lenses, but to realize that God has uh, betrothed himself to you if you're one of his. So let Ezekiel's provocative words remind us of these things, that in your relationship with God, you are sacred. You're set apart, special for God. It's not that you somehow impressed him or are superior, better than other people in some way. That's not the case. In your relationship with God, uh, you were rescued, not reformed. God came and, uh, and rescued us. It's not that we cleaned ourselves up uh, and then impressed God in some way. In your relationship with God, it's about his glory not yours. Here's where it all, remember, fell apart is when the spotlight started to turn inward. Then in your relationship with God, so thankful that he is faithful, though we are faithless. This all is a message for the people of God. Those who, by faith, have come into the family of God. This is what he has to say to us. This is one of those messages that's like, oh, here's a hard one. <laughs> what, uh, I'd just like to, before I end here, say a couple comments to anyone who might be among us that has not yet come into a relationship uh, with God through faith. And what is the takeaway if, if that's uh, your place right now? And as I thought about this passage, I thought, how wonderful to be invited by a God like that, a God who rescues us, a God who keeps always his side of the bargain, (laughs) 
a God who poured out his life for us, who lavishes us with, with gifts, and on and on and on. He's always faithful even when we struggle. How wonderful to take up an offer like that. Don't, uh, don't turn him away when God passes by and says, will you be mine, so to speak. Just surrender to a God like that. At the end, um, after Kevin comes up, we're going to sing one more song, and I just wanted to remind you that uh, we have uh, prayer available if you'd like to come and pray uh, over something, and maybe it's something related to uh, this passage and the things we've discussed together, or another need in your life. We just want to make that available. But as we close, the challenge for all of us, I think I could boil it down to this, is simply remember to whom you belong. Remember who God is to you. And uh, let, me, let me pray for us.